Good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this Hacking the Red Circle conversation, where we talk to people in the TEDx world you'll want to know better. The show is designed to learn what it takes to produce, organize, promote, and create a world-class event. If you're an experienced organizer, you'll get some great tips. Veteran organizers share lessons they've learned so that first-timers can avoid common missteps. There are hundreds of amazing people in the TEDx universe, and we talk to a lot of them. If this is your first time to the show, welcome. We produce Hacking the Red Circle every week. You'll want to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Now, on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am I'm thrilled to do uh, one of our special episodes where we focus on, uh, not on the organizers, but on the ecosystem around that. In, in this instance, uh, we're going to talk to one of uh, TEDx Santa Barbara's past speakers, Stefan Bucher. Stefan, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mark. Nice to see you. Now you're in Southern California, right? Are, do you live in Pasadena? I do. Yeah. I love Pasadena. And for, for our listeners around the world, because we we're in, I don't know, 72 countries, I think. Um, what is Pasadena most known for, would you say, to someone who's listening from Pakistan or Bangladesh? The two times you, well, there's three times you hear about Pasadena. One, if there's an earthquake, but people like Caltech <laughs> will tell you how strong it was. Um, on New Year's Eve, or yeah, on New Year's Day, you'll see the Rose Parade. Um, and sometimes you'll see a satellite uh, launching from California, or as happened very recently, a probe will land on Mars. And that will have been designed and built here in Pasadena at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I love that. Uh, I, my family uh, uh, migrated from the Midwest to Pasadena in the early 20s, 1920s, and so I have long, long, uh, deep roots uh, to that part of the world. Now, Stefan, uh, one of the things I loved about your talk was that, I mean, you're an artist, a designer, an illustrator, a famous typographer. Uh, you've done amazing work. I will let people, I will put in lots of notes and links in the show notes. But I, I had forgotten that you created a short film to introduce yourself and your work uh, before your talk. And it, and it went up. And I, having just watched a Coen Brothers film, the soundtrack uh, was reminiscent of a nice Western. Uh, but it was spectacular in that you said you had moved here from Germany, and now 15 years later, we're going to share. You're going to share some wisdom with the crowd. And I thought that's kind of a perfect preamble or premise for today's conversation because in 2012 at the Music Academy in Santa Barbara, you got up and and gave a talk. And that's, you know, that's some years ago now. And I, and I thought this episode would be good uh, for organizers to listen to from the speaker's point of view. And then I'm also going to send this out to people who are potential speakers from the speaker's point of view. So all these years later, is that step into the red carpet, the red circle still, can you still remember that moment? Absolutely. Um, it was it was an interesting change of pace for me because I, I do a lot of speaking, but mostly to other designers, other artists. So there's a lot more 
shared background that I can just immediately tap into. So this was much more of a general audience or, um, and not, not general, obviously it's a very specific and very special audience, but it comes from a wider array of backgrounds. Um, but yeah, I remember because I mean, obviously there's this, this huge mystique around the red circle and around Ted. And so I obviously also wanted to make it extra, extra special. Um, and, and, you know, really bring it home for you. Ted was only, Ted X at the time was only three years old. We're, uh, as we roll into, not sure when someone's going to listen to this episode, but uh, 2019 is the 10-year anniversary of the TEDx platform. And so we were in the kind of the first hundred-ish uh, events back then. So we were all still figuring out how how to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember um, any, when you said it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a unique platform, but you already had a sense that the TEDx stage was different at that time. I did. Um, it, you know, I, I have to say I have some regrets about it. Oh, how's that? In the sense that, uh, both you and Kimberly were, were very open to helping me and to listen to my talk beforehand and help me shape it. And I remember being kind of cranky about it and being like, no, 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 no. I know how that all works. I'm just, I'm just going to do my thing. Cause I know my thing and my thing works really well. And after going to going on stage, I had a chance to do a typography workshop at TED TED and I spoke to some of the speakers there and I got more of an introduction of, Oh, this is a thing that happens where the organizers will help you find an arc and find the shape of it that works for that format. And at the time I just immediately projected all my insecurity on you and was like, these guys don't trust me. They don't realize like as a friend of mine likes to say, don't you know who I think I am? And, and I did, you know, and I do have a way of doing it where I, I improvise a lot of the talk. I mean, I, I will create a framework with my visuals and with the overture that you had mentioned. And I like winging it because there is a magic to making it up in the moment. Um, but I wish I'd been a little bit more open to saying, okay, let me try it your way. Let me, you know, let me go over it with you and let me figure it out. Um, because I think there is something, especially when it then ties into TED.com. I think the more freewheeling thing that I do in some ways, I still think works better in the room, but doesn't integrate as well into the entire TED ecosystem. Would it surprise you to hear that we spend at least six months coaching speakers now? Now it wouldn't surprise me, uh, but at the time it would have surprised the hell out of me. And when I first heard it, um, and I taught, I spoke specifically to a few TED fellows the year I was at TED, and it blew me away because I also it completely recast how I looked at those talks, at all of those talks, because to me it's always a spontaneous performance when I do it. And I didn't realize that it's to some degree a beautiful recital, that it's much more in a classical music uh, performance space versus 
like a, a pop music performance space. I, I appreciate that, uh, that analogy. That's, it's really what it is. The careful crafting of a highly scripted craft content, the talk that is uh, also when done well, very choreographed from a motion in the red circle point of view. Um, even the ones that feel like they're completely off the cuff, like Simon Sinek, um, every breath, every nuance, even with his little flip chart, you know, it just felt so low res yet everything was scripted and rehearsed. And the, the trick, and this is why I think it takes six months is to how I love that classical recital because as if you listen to musicians, they'll say, well, the notes are the notes, man, the notes are the notes, but still there is a performance aspect, right? Oh, absolutely. And I've, I've, had um, occasion to sit in on a few um, piano master classes recently, just to watch people take master classes, and that's all it is. is. I mean, they've got a score in their head; they play it beautifully. I listen to it and I go, "Holy cow, that's amazing!" But then the teacher will come in and will go, "Stop! Six measures ago, the third note, maybe a little bit more." And then they go back, they immediately know what he's talking about, they immediately do it. And it's and it's frankly something that I have very little practice doing. And um because it's just so not my natural mode of being. Um but that that I'm kind of like, wait, but what about improvising? Like, why not just add a whole little you know, fiddly there. And they're like, well, that's because Beethoven didn't want that there. Exactly. Uh, and of course I'm going, well, what does he know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in retrospect, I, that's really something that I wish I had explored more. So let's pull on that thread yeah. just a little bit. Um, because I am an improvisational speaker. I've been speaking since I was 17 years old in front of you know, large audiences as well. And I'm extremely comfortable and I'll just give me a topic and I'll riff mm -hmm. on the topic like you do. You know, you live your life. You can talk about your life all day long, right? It's, it's easy, right? Exactly. Um, yet this format is, as you said, not for the room. It's really for the YouTube audience yep. we've learned and how you keep that audience engaged in the first nine seconds, then the next 90 seconds, and then three minutes in, six minutes in, are they still watching? And how are you? And like we're, we're as producers thinking about that all the time. And that comes down to highly scripted. And I love, again, the recital of that. Has that realization changed how you approach your speaking now? Or do you still do the same thing? Or do you have a hybrid? It's it's a little bit of a hybrid. I'm a little bit more conscious of it, especially for the larger audiences. When I do know that it's going to be filmed, when I do know that it has a life outside of that. Um, I did a talk for the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis a few years ago. And they told me in advance that they were going to film it. They also told me that it was going to be auto-transcribed. And uh -oh. so I opened by just riffing on that and making kind of making a little bit of fun of that. And I said, let's see if we can get the Walker some YouTube engagement. 
Let me just start by saying Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, crystal meth, and spent two minutes just sending out buzzwords. And I've never had so many views on a talk. And I've also never had so many angry comments on a talk. Because, of, of course, it had zero relevance to people. I also got placed on these weirdly robo-populated websites that exist, I think, purely to generate Google ads or to, to make money off of Google ads. So I was briefly the face of the homepage of crystalmeth.com <laughs> with that talk about design. Uh, Is that in your CV now? <laughs> it should be. Um, yes. So, I mean, I, I try to be cognizant of it now. Um, I think I could still be much better about, uh, you know, SEO when I do those talks. At the end of the day, I still want to connect with the room first. Um, but I think what it is, is it's an opportunity to increase your information density. And I think that's what it is to, to prepare it for, you know, for TED.com or for just whoever hosts you posting it on their website is how much information can you pack into the space? Because there's a lot that you can do in the room that only works in the room. And the fact that it's a little bit, in my case, you know, the way I come off, I think is sort of a little bit the mad professor is kind of my, pers my stage persona. And again, that works really well in the room. And it's really kind of like, oh, hey, look at that guy. He's crazy. We love that. Um, but then sometimes that doesn't translate quite as well to video where then sometimes it just comes off a little bit unfocused. And I think for that, for those instances, I try to just, if, and especially if I have a conference audience where I'm not the only speaker, um, then, and I have the 18 minutes, then I just really tighten it up much more and I really plan it out more and I go, okay, well, I want to hit this beat. I want to hit this beat. I want to get to this part here. Um, and by this time, if I've got the whole evening to myself, if I'm the only person speaking, I've got 90 minutes plus an endless Q and a, and I can just let loose. Um, but when it's different, different style of talk, it's a completely different style of talking, but if it's a conference and it's like, right, you're going on from one Oh five to one twenty three, I got to make sure that I stay within that. So, so knowing that, knowing the constraints, the constraints, it's a global audience. Uh, we want to integrate the room. We don't want to ignore the room. We want to build a relationship with that audience because that energetically helps you be better and give the talk of your life. Um, and we were novice organizers at the time. We'd done, uh, we'd done two, I think it was in 2011. It was 11, 11, 11, right? right. Uh, so we were still learning. What advice would you give to an organizer who's dealing with a headstrong speaker? <laughs> um, I, I have my own answer. But yeah. I'm curious um, because the, the person listening now, and we talk about this on the Facebook organizers group, I'm like, how do you do that? So what, what advice might you give them? What, yeah, what, what would have snapped me out of my headstrongness about it? Um, I think just pulling back and explaining why you need what you need. Cause I really was in the space of, I've got this wired. I do this all the time. 
this is fine. And you told me at the time, oh, you know, this is a different thing. This is special. And I was like, yeah, no, I know it's special. I know it's Ted. I get it. But of course I didn't get it. Right. So I think if, if I were an organizer now dealing with an obstreperous uh, young buck such as myself, I would have said, let me explain how it's special. Because the, the day is one thing and connecting with the crowd in the room on the day is one thing. We're designing this to live on the site for years. Here's what work, here's what we found works, here's what we found doesn't work that maybe works in the room but doesn't work for the site. And um, then I think I would have been more drawn into the process and I would have said, oh, I, now I get it. And there is, I think, as much as I was, I mean, the, the headstrongness also is, of course, just me externalizing my fear and my imposter syndrome of, oh, God, you know, I'm great. I suck. I'm great. I suck. And so if it's just, right, let's make this about a process. Let's, let's build something that really works for this very spe- specific thing, I think would, would be a helpful thing to, to tell speakers. And yo, these many years later, that that's exactly what we've done. Uh, one of the great things about the TEDx uh, ecosystem, the way us, the way the organizers work, it's a very open source environment. It's a very collaborative environment. There's no one's making any money anyway, so we can all if we can help each other do the job, we're, we're happy to do that. And two years ago when we rebooted our franchise as TEDx Santa Barbara, when you were with us, it was TEDx American Riviera. We, um, I went and looked at every single speaker page, speaker information, call for participation. What does it mean to speak at TEDx uh, that I could find? And I created uh, a mashup of that. And uh, just recently in the last several weeks, someone was a newbie. And saying, gosh, I don't know what to tell the speakers. And I said, I kind of worked on that problem quite a bit. Take a look at this page. Mm-hmm. And what was very uh, heartening to me was having organizers chime in on that and saying, gosh, could we copy that page? That is really, really good. Because to your point, it's, you know, why is it important? You're like, what's the idea? What does the world need to hear it? Why does the world need to hear it now? And what gives you permission to be the person <laughs> to tell us? Let's get over that imposter syndrome thing quick. And one of the things also that I that I really I, I really wish um, I'd done with you and I'd let you do with me because you certainly offered it was to go through the material early and say, okay, what is the big idea? What is the thing that's important? Um, because I just, you know, I like to tell stories and I have a lot of work that has stories attached to it that I love telling. And I always get the sense of the room and I always think, okay, what's important to the audience? And whenever I go speak somewhere, I'll call the organizers, you know, a little bit beforehand and I say, what does the audience need to hear from me, do you think? What would they you know, what do I have to say that nobody else can say to them? Or what 
do they need to hear, but they might listen if I tell it to them to make that a part of it. But I wish I would have gone through all the stuff with you and ha- and asked you, what do you think it is that resonates? Because I have my own ideas, but then it's like, oh, well, but I also need to tell them this thing. And they also need to hear this other bit from way over here because that's how I make sense of my own story. And it's always so unbelievably helpful to have somebody from the outside come in and go, no, see, the thing that makes it special isn't the song you're playing. It's the fact that you're playing it on a carrot instead of a trombone, whatever. That was a weird metaphor. This is the kind of thing that had we worked together. I was with you. I stayed with you on that. You know, but you would have told me, carrot and trombone, not the best pairing. Let's work on a better pairing that works quicker. That kind of thing. Also, cultural references that don't mean anything outside of the room are probably that's that's the that, that's the other piece is you're playing to a global audience. Um, I had my own road to the Red Circle uh, a, a year ago. Um, TEDx Fargo's organizer Greg Tavine, uh on an episode like this said, "How come you haven't done a TED talk?" And I said, "Well, that's not my jam. I'm you know I'm an organizer. I'm, my job is to enable others." And he says, "Yeah, not good enough." Um, <laughs> I, you know, you're not getting out of this, Sylvester. And uh, so he uh, formally invited me a year before uh, TEDx Fargo, and I got to go in July. And I thought, you know, I of of all the people in the world who really has this, it's I feel like I have it. I'm married to a speaker coach who's done 300 talks, and uh, I'm good. No, sir, I was not good at all. Uh, I kept track of my revisions because I'm as um, uh, as retentive as you are, and I had uh, 29 versions of my uh, my script. And it was interesting when you have someone who professionally does this go through and say, you know, it, it took us eight long walks on the beach to come up with that single core idea. Uh, again, organizers, you don't have this much time, but it's so critically important that you make this point with your speakers and speakers know that it can take you that long to come up with that single thread of what it is that you're trying to talk about. And then the you write it and you've got a 30-minute talk. And someone needs to come in and say, you know, we don't, yes, I understand that piece of background helps support the premise, but doesn't help support the idea. Um, so I would ask then for your talks now, when you said it's a hybrid, do you actually sit and write them down and figure out at a minimum what the big beats are? Uh, I do it through the visuals because of course, as a, as a designer and illustrator, everything always is anchored by my deck, which is a little bit different from a lot of the TED talks that are, that are just speaking so in that sense i write it but i don't tend to write phrases sometimes i'll make some notes if i have a particular if i have a metaphor that i like particularly i'll write that down to remember it later but that i still will make up what i did recently i i had to give a talk at the international astronautical congress in guadalajara that was, oh my goodness. That was, remember when Elon Musk made the announcement for the Mars Express of going to Mars? That was the conference. So I was talking to scientists about a space art project. 
and I had 10 minutes, which is hard for me. I can't answer how you doing today in 10 minutes. So what I did uh, is I gave the talk to my phone 10 times in a row and I kept recording it and I kept timing it. One or two of those I listened to, it wasn't even so much about listening back. It was just, can I get it on time and having the discipline of recording it versus just timing it and somehow that made a difference. I did listen to one or two of them and in listening, I went, oh, right. Well, that part, when I'm saying it, sounds good to me and feels good to say it. But as I'm listening to it, it's kind of superfluous. We don't really need it. And it's to some degree, if I, if I can make a, a designer, if I can give you a designer image for it, it's like making printouts of your designs versus looking at it on the screen. There is a difference. I'll, if I design it on screen, I'm like, oh, this, this all works great. But then I print it out and I go, oh, now that I'm holding it in my hand, it's different. This can go, this can go, this can move somewhere else. Your brain just um, can move chunks around more easily. So that's kind of my, my way of, of rehearsing it for those kinds of instances. Um, but I still really, I'm really loath to actually script it out. I did it with, you know what, I, I'm thinking back now, I did write it out initially for that talk once. And then I kind of sort of read it off, immediately hated it, tossed the script. But I think there was still value in writing and having written it once. So a couple of things come to mind when you when you say that the the act of you said the word discipline the actual discipline of doing it that's speakers pay attention speaker organizers make sure that there's rehearsal rituals with your speakers so they're doing this and that you did only listen to it a couple of times uh, makes perfect sense to me because we hate to do that it's not a pleasant thing to do um, but there's a couple of, a couple of things, just some pro tips for you. One is there is a site called rev, rev.com and they've got a, a, a voice recorder app that you can get and you pay a buck a minute and you can just do that talk and then send it, just hit a button and it magically gets translated. And within like 30 minutes, you get a spot on transcription of the talk. That's how we do the podcasts and things like that. Um, what's great is when you see the words as opposed to hearing the words, it's yet another process that goes in the brain, right? You can, you start to see that. Uh, secondly, uh, after my talk, uh, we do a thing called the Samurai Seven, which are uh, every seven weeks, we start a new series of tips for speakers, like how to memorize, how to rehearse, how to polish your delivery, that kind of thing. And we took occasion after my TED talk to kind of break that down into seven episodes. And in the last episode, Kimberly said, what was the one thing you wished you had done more of? Because I did everything. I had, I had three coaches. I, I mean, it was a little insane. I were like that in, in, in many ways. Um, but I said, I wished I had done more of the video rehearsals where I had put on my Bluetooth microphone, set up the camera, went to a quiet park, did it outside to have this sense of space and volume. And there is, you had said, 
like in your head, when you're delivering the line, there's a certain feeling you have, but then when you heard it back or you read it, you're like, oh. So have you ever done a video rehearsal of yourself? I was forced to do it once. <laughs> I was given a, uh, a beta tape of it that I have yet to watch. Oh my God, beta. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, um, well, this was because it was pro equipment, man. This was, this was, I was an advertising guy. Um, it's a, it's a really good idea to do. I mean, it's, it's just all, it's all about fear and how do you navigate the fear? Cause of course the fear is I'm going to watch it and it's going to destroy me. It's going to make me feel horrible. I'm going to go up and I'm going to go, Oh my God, is that what I look like? That's terrible. At the same time, I mean, I've seen myself on video from a ton of conferences. So I do from that, I think I kind of know how certain things work and don't work. But again, the discipline aspect of it does come in to say, right, do it for this. You know, do it correctly. I regret the tie that I wore for TEDx American Riviera. Because I would, for big talks, I'd always get a new tie because I'm a creative person. I don't really do them day to day. And I pick this very nice one and I, I'm always cognizant of, okay, this is going to be on camera. And I got a very nice suit. It was a dark suit. And what I didn't realize is that the, with the lighting the way it was, the suit and my purple shirt, basically red as black, and the very intricate yet subtle tie glowed like a mofo. And it just looked like black suit with wacky party tie, which is not the image I wanted to put out. And so for that alone, a camera test would have been fantastic. Well, we, we do advise that. In fact, we, we now, I, I think we've gotten pretty good at this, uh, you know, 300 talks later. Uh, do we do the two weeks before we do on stage rehearsals mm -hmm. with the entire uh, crew? Uh, so they can get used to talking with lights in their eyes and not being able to see an audience and, you know, all of those other things that you don't think about. But, you know, you're given the talk of your life. As you said, it's going to it's going to last forever uh, out there. Um, I want to I'm curious about what, what is it that you love about speaking so much? Because there's. There's something that drives speakers. And I wonder if you could put your finger on it. You're getting, you're getting to flirt with hundreds and thousands of people at the same time. And you're getting this <laughs> crazy energy back. So if you have any self-esteem issues, which of course I don't at all, right? But I mean, kidding aside, if you're, if you have a little bit of that hole to fill in yourself and you go on stage and all of a sudden you're getting this crazy validation from hordes of people. It's wonderful. It's an absolutely glorious feeling. And I never feel as present and as centered and as relaxed and calm and wonderful as I do when I'm on stage. It is my favorite mode of being. 
out of all modes. If I could go on stage every day and speak to a room full of people, it would delight me. It takes a lot out of me. I mean, by the end of it, I'm ready to just slouch into a corner. But it's fantastic because you're, you're just, everything I do in my work, writing the books, designing things, creating characters, it's all about connecting with other people. This is my way of connecting with the world, is making stuff that makes other people happy. And this is the most direct line that I can get to people, is to be in that room, to give them something that's useful to them, that's delightful to them, that maybe makes them change the way they look at the world. It's just the rush to end all rushes. And that's speaking to, you know, again, audiences like I've had, you know, from a small room to anything up to, I think the biggest I've had was 7,000 people, which was pretty crazy. Think of people that are musicians. Think of like Springsteen. It is zero surprise to me that the guy spends three hours on that stage because why would you want to get off it? I would play till I dropped. And it's also no surprise to me whatsoever that people that go on tour as musicians then go back to their hotel room and throw a TV out the window because you have all this energy and there is a profound drop-off after being in a room where everybody loves you, everybody wants to be near you, everybody wants to have their photo taken, wants to get their book signed, to what's on TV now. And if I can have a little aside for organizers, if you're inviting speakers out to come to your town to speak, make sure you take them to dinner after. Make sure you don't just drop them off. And most organizers will do that because they're excited that you're there. But I've had instances where they're like, well, that was great. Well, see you later. You know, have a good trip to the airport tomorrow. And that's too much of a drop off. Like That's just disheartening. But anyway, I, di I digress. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. It's just to, to go up and to have this connection. And to me, it is, it's a musical performance to me. And the instrument I play is my visuals and the way I speak about my topic is I look at it as a, as a musical thing with where are the swells, where are the quiet bits, where's the crescendo, and how do I incorporate what I'm getting back from the audience? Because some audience, you know, every audience is different, and some rooms are really hot, and some rooms are more contemplative. Um, sometimes when I talk at colleges, the room is just tired, where it's like, what's going on with these kids? Oh, they're in midterms, all right. What do I do? And how do I make this work? Stand-up comedy is a really good model for this too. I listen to a ton of stand-up comedy before I have talks coming up um, just to get into that rhythm because I find it really, really helpful. So it's a performance and it's, and it's just, it's a wonderful way of connecting. I, I love how you brought all of that home from the beginning, talking about the classical recital to it being a performance. And I, as you were speaking, I was thinking of walking into the story development room at Pixar. Uh, as you know, my background was in computer animation and seeing the storyboards on the wall. And next to that room is the 
the color boards where they look at the colors, how the color changes. And then there's an emotional room, which they're, they're taking you through the emotion of the story. And I, I love that you, you help us understand that it's not just the content, but it's the content married to the performance and the delivery. And it's those two things which uh, contribute to uh, a talk that's worth watching and if it's not worth watching, the idea is never going to be spread. And as an organizer, our job is to have everything conspire so that when you step into the circle, it is you give the talk of your life. Because if no one watches it, like who cares, right? I mean, the whole point is you're going to spend so much time on it, uh, both as organizer, you're going to spend time as the speaker, you're going to spend time. And, you know, everything is done to like, there's new batteries in the microphone. So we don't have an audio hiccup and the lighting has been checked and there's a tech rehearsal and there's all of those things. And then it's still you, they tap you on the shoulder, you're on and you walk out there and you set center, take that breath and rock and roll. Stefan, I really appreciate your friendship. I appreciate you. We, we've been friends for a while now. I, I watched your talk again. I'm going to link that into the show page. Um, one of the things we do, uh, the show's called Hacking the Red Circle. And I normally ask organizers um, for a hack, which is uh, the way I define it. The frame is it's the thing that you do that doesn't cost any money but has a material impact on the, uh, the event. Uh, the example I use is uh, TEDx Amsterdam. He said, uh, as the organizer, what you want to do is make sure you've planned everything to, so well that when the guests are arriving, you as the organizer can stand at the front door and welcome every single one of them into the hall personally. It's like, it doesn't cost anything. And I've done that ever since I heard that. And I was like, so what, what hack do you have for speakers? And that could be any, anything you wish. For me, it's the overture that you mentioned at the beginning, that where I have a musical intro. And it's a, I mean, as a hack, it's not an easy thing. It's a fairly, it's, it's super labor intensive. It's time. It takes a lot of time in that way. It costs a lot but it sets a mood for me so that when I come on the first two minutes, there's music, there are images. And the first laugh happens without me having to even do anything. And it immediately warms up the room and it sets a mood. It's basically my way of having an opening act for myself and to get a lot of information out very quickly. And that's not for everybody because also my body of work is very specific where that works really well. But I think the the hack would be, is there a way, what's the way to make yourself feel comfortable very quickly once you're on stage? If you have any sort of nervousness or any hesitation and you can't just tough it out and fake your way through it, is there something that makes you comfortable? Maybe it's that you have a good luck charm that you have in your pocket where you can just reach for it and go, everything's cool, everything's all right. 
you know, like what's what's your speaker binky? Um, <laughs> I know um, a friend of mine is an actress, and she said that when she goes on stage, she wears particular socks or she wears shoes that are slightly uncomfortable because it makes her feel present because she it it just pulls her into her body where she's like oh i feel my feet and it centers her so it can be something like that and i think that's that's helpful the other thing isn't i mean it's not it's not a hack if it's a fundamental thing but it's it's just crucial to always keep in mind that you're not there to gratify your ego. You're not there to share with the world the glory that is you. You're there to perform for the audience. You've been selected to do that. And that's the ego part where you go like, oh, hey, cool, great. Well, that makes me feel good. But now, what do I give to you? And some and I and I have in the past sometimes lost sight of that a little bit, where it's just like, no, well, my mission is to show my work and that will be an example, and they can see how people make that happen and how that can be. And that's true to a degree, but it has the framing has to always be how can I be useful to you? Um, how can how can I make your life is the dough, it's not the bread. Um, you have to prepare it in a way that is digestible to them. And they can, if you give them something that isn't really geared to them, they'll still get it and they'll still pull something out for themselves that's useful, but you'll have a much better throughput um, if you really just make it audience compatible to that specific audience. Stuff on that that second bit was it, it is fundamental. It is a hack. It's a free thing to just keep in mind that why why you're there, what you're doing. Uh, I appreciate that. That's a great note to end on. I want to tell you my little binky, as you said, is um, in the seven minutes before I go on stage, I'm mic'd. I put my headphones on and I listen to um, Hamilton. I'm not throwing away my shot as loud as I can, and that will change my state and put me in a because I know why I'm there. I'm there. I've got a shot to, you know, to. And then my wife will remind me. She says, "Remember, there was I don't know several thousand, four thousand people in the audience." And she said, "You're only talking to one person. If you can affect, change one person's point of view and help that one person, that's why you're there." And an artist came up to me afterwards and told me almost exactly that. Like, thank you. You gave me permission to look at the world differently. Thank you. And I was like, okay, that was the one person uh, mission accomplished. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us on Hacking the Red Circle. Uh, I love following your work. It's so creative. Uh, we'll put links to all of that. You you're constantly amaze me. Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it's interesting that your life is spent solitary with um, your your creative pursuits, uh, sometimes all night long working uh, by yourself, yet the thing you like to do most is be on stage in a room in front of people. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Hacking the Red Circle. 
Have an idea for a guest for the show? Or would you like to tell us your TEDx story? Just drop me a note in an email to mark at hackingtheredcircle.com. Please be sure to rate, write, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Makes a huge difference. And share the show with your team as we seek to grow our audience around the world. Until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for Hacking the Red Circle.